So, Junior Church, there are bulletins in the back for you to fill out. Please don't forget to fill them out. You get a piece of candy that's four years old through fourth grade. Uh, if you're new here today, that's uh, one of the things we do. We don't have Junior Church every Sunday, but we want to include them in this. So if you fill that out, you'll get a piece of candy at the end. We're in a whole sermon series right now going through the book of Psalms. And last week we started with Psalm 1, and I thought, why not look at just Psalm 2 and see what that is. This is the first of the Messianic Psalms. That means a psalm about the Messiah, the coming Savior or Jesus. Um, Unlike the previous psalm, this psalm is not anonymous. Although the author isn't given in the book of Psalm 2, it is given in Acts 4 where it says the Holy Spirit spoke through David. So David wrote Psalm 2. And it is divided into four stanzas of three verses each. In the first three, we are spectators. So in the first three verses, we're going to sit back and see what plans out, what happens. And in the, um, in the last Psalms, the last one, the writer exhorts the readers to come unto allegiance, to do something with their faith. This one is totally different because it is about Jesus, the, the prince or the king of all kings. So just trying to give you a little background before we jump into it. So let's look at Psalm 2, verses 1 through 3. This is a funny way to start a song. Remember, psalms are songs or poems that are written to music. Why are the nations so angry? Why do they waste their time with futile plans? The kings of the earth prepare for battle. The rulers plot together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they cry, and free ourselves from slavery to God. You ever seen one of those war cries, those war chants where they're just tired and they're fed up? Uh, There was one in in my generation that had really good music. The song was, We're Not Going to Take It. See? You knew right then there was this cry. We're not going to take it. Yeah, and now now you guys are kind of just, yeah, they're over here going, mm, yeah. It just started up that little battle cry in you, right? Well, that's what's going on here. Why are the nations so angry? These nations are angry. But why are they? They are angry. They are hostile towards God. I've seen people who were angry with God. Usually it's because of some tragedy um, that they were suffering. They spoke out in pain. And while they were angry, they were not hostile. Okay, hear me on that. Being angry is not the same as being hostile. And so uh, these people are hostile towards God. And reading this made me ask the question, is what is described in the Psalms here a universal rule that holds over all the nations? Are all the nations angry? Uh, Do these verses describe every nation? I don't think so. I think this is really pertains to anybody who's part of a belief system that is openly against God. A, a belief group or a society that openly tries to destroy the kingdom of Christ. Now, can these verses be about the United States? Potentially. But as things stand, I, I don't think they are fully encompassing America. Despite some alarming trends, to my mind, the United States is still a wonderful country. It's an exception to the norm. 
And while we are increasingly experiencing erosion of the blessings that God has given us and we're used to, uh, those liberties we are losing are outside of the normalcy of other countries in the world. Christians, because of this, Christians must not be guided by the legality or the criminality of sinful acts. What that means is it has always been legal to sin in multitudes of ways. But to Christians, legality is not license. Just because it's legal to do so doesn't mean we should. Mothers do know this by heart. Just because your friends jump off a bridge doesn't mean you should. Okay, that's the same principle. Just because it's legal doesn't mean you should. Christians are guided by a higher calling than to do anything that the laws of man say we're allowed to do. I believe this psalm is about those governments that intentionally and overtly set themselves in direct opposition to the belief and practices of faith in God in heaven and earth. That's kind of my opinion on how I read this. As... As I was reading this, I started looking up some statistics, and there's a a group called Open Doors that talks about the persecution of Christians. And it says it took a massive jump from 2018, 2019, and then jumped really high into 2020 and has been growing steadily. 30 million people were added to bringing the number of Christians vulnerable to persecution up to 248 million. So in 2020, the amount of Christians who are getting persecuted in the world jumped by almost 14%. That don't seem like much. Well, just say that if your taxes jump that much. Then that's a lot, isn't it? And so think about that. It is part of a growing trend of Christian persecution all around the world. Five years ago, Open Doors only had one country on its severe persecution list. Just one. Now there are 11. 11 countries where Christians are severely persecuted. According to this um, Open Door website, in North Korea, it is an act of treason to convert to Christianity. It's treasonous. In Afghanistan, which is governed by Islamic law, it's against the law for anyone to be non-Muslim. So you have to be Muslim. Somalia, which is 99% Muslim and is ruled by Islamic warlords, who dispense brutal retribution against Christians. If they see a Christian group, they beat them up. They don't care. Uh, Libya, very similar to Somalia, has fallen into anarchy with Islamic militia groups persecuting Christians whenever they want. Pakistan, ruled by Sharia law, uh, Christians and other non-Muslims are on death row facing charges of blasphemy. Why did they go to jail? Because they're not Muslim. That's the whole reason. Sudan, another Islamic state where Christians have been arrested and many churches have been destroyed, and the state, the government, endorses it. Iran's Islamic government considers Christianity an attempt of the West to undermine its authority. They think Christianity is a ploy to hurt their country. Christian leaders are often sentenced to long jail terms after being charged with crimes against national security. It is illegal for any Muslim in the country to convert to Christianity. 2018, um, India joined the top ten list of most dangerous countries for Christians for the first time. China jumped from the 43rd spot 
in 2017 to 27th in 2018. There is a rise against Christianity. Okay? Um, they are closing down serve, uh, churches and Christians in China. They, in China, they said it's the worst persecution since 1976 when nearly 70 million people were killed because of their faith. And it's worse now. We don't hear this stuff, do we? We're not seeing this because, uh, well, the world doesn't like Christians. And the Bible has said so. So we cannot be surprised, surprised by this. When the Psalms were written, and for many years following, it was other nations the outside nations that were raging against the Lord's anointed, against His people, an earthly kingdom of Israel, their nations and their cities. Beginning in Isaiah 13, in many chapters, there's Babylon, Moab, Damascus, Crush, Egypt, Assyria, Tyre, Sidon, Philistia, Amalek. It, I want to be very bold in, a very, in this next statement. So I really want to hear, want you all to hear this. Christians here and everywhere are right to stand against any government that restricts the right to obey God's commands. If God says something, Christians, you have the right to stand up and oppose anything that tells you you can't do it. Okay? If it says, if, if the church, or if the Bible says you must gather together, like it says in Hebrews, you must gather together, do not forsake assembling. And then the government says, no longer can you do it. It's illegal to do it. We have every right, Christians anywhere have every right to say, I will continue to do this. I will obey God rather than men. That does not mean you can sit there and say, well, I don't like the new speed limits. And so you rise up against it. That's not what I'm saying. It has to be in the right to obey God. So far, we in the United States live in a nation that has been harmonious with the practice of our faith more than any other on the earth or has ever existed. We live in a more sheltered condition than the saints who suffered greatly for their faith in other countries. But their condition out there is the norm, and it is coming here. Someone may say, well, what about abortion, the legalization of drugs, the decriminalization of of uh, material goods. You know, it's okay to steal things out in another state as long as it's under $500. They can't prosecute you or, or get sent you to jail. So, so do you, now an alarm clock in, that, in one of the stores over there is $500. An alarm clock. Now, after you check out, they give you a discount coupon that takes it down to $9. That's how they're getting away with it. But that's, it's not criminalized anymore. So that means it's okay, right? So that means we can go over to this state, take everything we want, under $500. And is that right? The legalization doesn't excuse sin. And that's what this is saying. We cannot depend on governments of the world, including the U.S., to prevent us from sinning by laws. Christianity was born in, uh, in a world where abortion was very legal and practiced widely likely as much as it is nowadays in the United States. In that world, when Christianity was born, Christianity grew and flourished despite the rules and regulations that really tried to prohibit it. 
The choice to avoid sin must be made in the presence of our freedom to sin and to put God first. Okay? Now, why? Let, that was a little side sermon. Okay? So let's get back to this. So in uh, chapter 2, why are the people, the nation, so angry? Why are they so hostile towards God? Why do they think they are in chains? Did you see where it says they want to break the chains that they are enslaved by God? What really is their objection? Look at verse 3. Let us break their chains, they cry, and free ourselves to the slavery of God. People do not want limits on what they can do. That's why our kids fight us. They want more freedoms than they think they are getting. They want more allowances to do things than they think they're allowed. People claim, even in this room, that the speed limit is a suggestion. Okay? I have heard that if there is a black dot on the backside of a stop sign, you don't have to stop there. So that, that means you just drive through, turn around, oh, I'll have to stop next time. Let me tell you something right now. Speed limits are law. Stop signs are there for your safety and everybody else's. They are law. If you are doing 60 and a 55, that is not the buffer. That is against the law. And legally, you have every right to be given a ticket. I was only doing four and a half over. That's four and a half over the law. My kids didn't say... I only did four lies over the limit. No. This is a law, okay? Well, there's a new law in Montana, and some of you may want to move there. It's not new now, but it, it is pretty new to some people. They have a new speed limit. Here is a picture of the speed limits. Speed limit in the day, whatever is reasonable and prudent. If you're a truck, that means semi-truck, 60. At nighttime, all vehicles 55. You know what? I just saw the teens go, we're going to Montana. Now, here's the problem with this. This is the law. What this group here thinks is reasonable, reasonable and prudent is not what I would say is reasonable and prudent. Okay? So, hear me on this. Teenagers, that means you do 40. Okay? What? No, at night you have to do 55. You can speed up at night. Good job, Garrett. Yeah, Thompson's. Okay. But isn't that ridiculous? It was because there's so many people that are fighting against the, well, it's just five over, so they went up. They went from 65 to 70, and then they went from 70 to 75, and they're like, you know what, just let them do what they want. While some applaud this, others are shocked and upset. Because we all see things differently in our own perspective, and that's where the laws need to just come in the middle and stay there. Okay? Worldly rulers, non-believers who are in leadership, want to rule with absolute authority. They love to live by their laws as long as they don't have to follow them. When we had the whole COVID lockdown, there was one uh, governor of, of the state, and she was really hard on, they have to do this, they have to do this, they have to do this, they can't meet, they can't do this, they can't do this. And then she was found 
doing those same things somewhere else. They want to live by the law as long as it pertains to everyone else under them, not them. They slander the laws of Christ's kingdom as bonds and thick cords or ropes, and they, they perceive that the laws of God are slavery. I've heard many people say that the Bible is full of rules. The Bible is just a big long list of do's and don'ts, and that Christians have to live, lead a very boring life. Is that a proper view of the Bible? No. And if people think that, it is not their fault, it's ours. Because we have done a horrible job of explaining what Scripture is. What is the true um, belief? What is the true understanding of the kingdom of God's Word mean? Well, Jesus said it in Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest. It's repeated. You will find rest for your souls. My yoke, notice he repeated that, rest twice and yoke twice, is comfortable. My burden is light. What is he saying here? I'm going to give you something easier than what the world is going to give you. A yoke is work. I'm going to give you tasks. I'm going to give you a job to do, but it's going to be a whole lot easier and a whole lot better for your soul than the world. To a true believer in Christ, the Word of God is not a burden, but is actually lifting the burdens off of our hearts and off of our minds. The Word of God frees us from the junk of the world. The words of God are like wings to a bird. I've got to see this bird that um, was deformed. It fell out of the, the nest. I think the mom kicked it out. It did not have a wing, a fully formed wing on it. And so it couldn't fly. What is a bird who can't fly? Dinner. But it, it, it's not going to go very far. The same birds that I've seen that are caught because they've um, had broken wings or whatever, what happens when they're finally released to fly again? They just keep flying. And, and that's what, hey, there are kids in the room. We love it. Just that we don't mind kids' noises unless they're teenagers. Or Vaughn. All right, sorry, sorry. Okay, so remember last week we looked at Psalm 1. Compare the nations. This nation in chapter 2 has hostility towards God. Now look at chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. But they, the ones who delight in the law of the Lord, meditating on it day and night, they are like trees planted along the riverbank, bearing fruit each season. Their leaves never, never wither, and they prosper in all they do. The ones who delight in the laws of God grow strong, have rest, and prosper. Versus the ones who delight in the world grow hostile towards anything God. I think we are seeing this in cultures around the world, including here. In Psalm 2, we see people plot against God. In chapter 2, and it says their work finally fails. Here's a, a true thing. In Spain, there are two pillars that were raised with this inscription. Diocletian, Javian, Maximilian, Hercules, uh, that name, Augusti, for having extended the Roman Empire in the East and the West, and for having extinguished all the names of Christians. 
who brought the republic to ruin. They raised these two pillars in honor of these people who were killing Christians. And yet what happened? Where's Rome now? It fell. Rome fell while Christianity grew. The nations rage against God, but God's reign is final. God's dominion does not depend on man's acceptance of it. Do we understand the truth of that? What that's saying is, if I teach you that the sky is green, what really is the sky? Teenagers over here, yellow. What color is in the sky? Blue. Oh, my goodness. We're going to leave all the little kids in, in here and send you to junior church. It's gray today. Fine. I need somebody who's smarter. Uh, Finn. No, you're late. No, you're Finn, right? Yeah. What, what color is the sky usually? Blue. It doesn't matter what I teach you. It doesn't matter what the teenagers say. The truth is the sky is blue because it's absolute. That's what it is no matter what. So God's dominion doesn't depend on if you accept it. Well, I don't accept God's laws and moralities when it comes to marriage and sexuality. I don't, I don't care about God's morality and laws when it comes to how much I should worship Him. I don't care about what God's laws say about what I give to Him. So I don't accept them. So, that doesn't change the validity and the truth of them. You may not agree with them. So what? They're God's laws, not ours. Okay? And we can no more throw off God's laws by opposition than we can fly to the moon on our own. It, it just can't. All the self-will in the world does not alter the fact that the authority of Christ is sovereign over all things, including my free will. We can either lovingly embrace it, or we can set ourselves against it, like an obstinate little child defying the rules. Isn't it great to have all the kids in here? And then we're like, well, but my free will. And then you look at them and go, yeah, they don't need free will right now. They need to do what they're told because they don't understand. Look what it says, verse 4, Psalm 2, 4. But the one who rules in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs. Remember, scoffing is really saying a judgment over it, okay? And this seems very harsh. I mean, God is scoffing at these people. Is the suffering of God's people, the cruelties of the enemies, and, and the persecution a laughing matter? No, and thankfully that's not what the Psalms is saying here. God laughs not in humor, but in contempt. He scorns the efforts to destroy his everlasting kingdom. I've had kids, and you all know them, okay? And when they were a certain size, they thought they knew better. They, when they were a certain size, they thought they knew better. But when they were about this big, they thought they could knew better, and they could push me out of the way. And so, here's my two boys at the time trying to push me. What did I do? I laughed. Are you kidding? You think a four- and five-year-old are going to move me? And then I reached down and picked them both up, like this, 
laughing at them and set them on the couch and said, now do what I told you. (sighs) That's what God's doing here. He's laughing at these people who are trying to push against him. And he's like, are you serious? You want to come against me? I am the creator. I'm the one who gave you life. I am the one who dictated and caused everything to happen. And you think you're smarter and bigger than me? (laughs) That's ridiculous. Pharaoh imagined it. Pharaoh imagined that by drowning the Israelite males, that he had found a way to get rid of their name in all the earth, and he would have power. And at the exact same time he's doing that, what happens? His own daughter saves a child by the very waters who ends up rising up and leading those people away. And what happens to Pharaoh's army? It drowns in the water. See the irony here? Did God laugh at in contempt at Pharaoh's plotting in vain? Haman's scheme was to destroy the entire population of the Jews because of a certain Jew named Mordecai. Mordecai refused to bow down to Haman because he said, you don't deserve that. I bow down to God. I'm not going to do that to you and all this thing. So Haman tricked the king into decreeing a genocide of all the Jews in the Persian Empire. Did God allow that to happen? No. Instead, this trickster found himself leading a horse with Mordecai on it, proclaiming that this is the one that the king delights in in honor. You'd think that's the worst thing that could happen to Haman, that he's got to lead around his enemy in front of everybody, proclaiming how great he is. Except the next thing, Haman was hanged from the gallows that he built to kill Mordecai. Plotting against God is in vain. How many times must we see it? For the wicked, for those who plot against God, their victory or their illusion of victory is very short. God scoffs at them because it's ridiculous that they would do this. Look at Psalm 2, 5, and 6. Then in anger, he, God, rebukes them, terrifying them with his fierce fury. For the Lord declares, I have placed my chosen king on the throne in Jerusalem and on my holy mountain. God doesn't just scoff at them for a little bit. He's like, come on, are you kidding? And then what happens? He gets angry. Just like when I had to pick up my boys who were finally needed to do what I said, I got mad and I did the dad voice. You know what's even more powerful than a dad voice? A mom voice. And then a God voice. When you change your voice in that, they can hear it. When my mom said, Donald, whoa, oh, okay. And that's what God, he's scoffing. Are you kidding? Come on, stop it. And then he gets mad. He rebukes, scolds, admonishes them while doing that God declares, I am the authority here. This is not about King David of who he puts on the throne. This isn't about any other king over Israel. This is about his chosen king, his personal king, about the Messiah, about the one who is on the holy mountain. And what we see here is Christ's sovereignty is universal. It is over everything. That's the next blank. I don't know if I have that in there. Yep, there. Okay. Christ is the king above how many kings? All kings. Okay? Mighty men, the great, the honorable men are like stick figures on paper when it comes compared to God, to against Jesus. He's not only the higher than all other kings, but he is higher than the angels who have 
demonstrated fearful powers. Hebrews 1.6. And when God brought his supreme son into the world, God said, let all God's angels worship him. We think angels are these mighty, powerful things. Well, they are nothing compared to Jesus. Christ is king over all kingdoms, all nations, all governments, all powers, over all people. In Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, the prophet said this. Isaiah 9.6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. All the government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Christ's reign is eternal. There was no time limit on this. He's universal and he's eternal. You can see this in Daniel chapter 7. As my vision continued, Daniel write, that night I saw someone like the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient One and was led into His presence, was given authority, honor, sovereignty over all the nations of the world, so that people of every race, nation, and language would obey Him. Not like Him, not believe Him. Obey Him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. This is the kingdom that we say that we come and be, are a part of every Sunday morning. This is the kingdom that is described in the Bible. This is the kingdom that Christians are citizens of. The kingdom that if you're a Christian, fealty, loyalty is required. God requires loyalty to His Son. You will give Him honor. And if you don't, like that little child trying to push against the dad. It's ridiculous. And you're going to be put in your place. Now there's a couple more verses. Verse 8. Only ask and I will give you the nations as your inheritance, the whole earth as your possession. Now we change from seeing it to hearing God speak it in this, in this psalm. God speaks personally to the king he has anointed, the king he has placed onto the mountain on the throne. He says to his son, the king, to Jesus, ask me and you'll get it. Ask of me. God promises to fulfill that request. Does that mean God will give anything that Jesus would ask or pray for? I mean, if God says just ask, didn't Jesus say, I don't want to go to the cross? Didn't Jesus say, I don't want to go to the cross. Please take this away from me. Would God have allowed that? Well, here's the rest of the prayer. Luke twenty-two forty-two. Father, if you are willing, notice the caveat there. If you are willing, please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Jesus did not want to go to the cross. He did not want to go through the eternal suffering, the, the pain of all the sin being thrust upon him. Why didn't God take the cross, the pain, that suffering away? Because it was God's will for you and I to come to salvation through Jesus. And even though Jesus didn't like the idea of it, he loved the idea of you and him in heaven. In his earthly body, Jesus didn't want to go to the cross, but he prayed for God's plan, God's will. And remember how God, or how Jesus taught all of his followers, all of them, not just the one in the Bible, all of us to pray in Matthew 6, 9 through 10. This is then how you should pray. Not that you would pray and recite the exact words, but the meaning, the emotive behind it. Our Father in heaven, what is it? Hallowed, holy be your name. 
your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know what he's, that, break that down? God, you're holy and I want your will to be done. That, that's what that verse is saying. Jesus prayed for God's will, God's plan. He taught all of us to do the same thing. When we do that, when we pray, when we live like that, we are living as citizens of heaven temporarily here on earth, not as citizens of this world. Verse 9, you will break them, God says to Jesus, you will break them with an iron rod and smash them like clay pots. How many of you like to break things? Yeah? What's your name? Come here. He, he likes to break things, okay? Remember, God is, is talking in this part. God is talking to the Messiah. Come on up here, bud. He is speaking to Jesus and saying, all those nations that rage against you are going to be broken like a clay pot. Have you ever broken a clay pot? Are you sure? Okay, what's your name again? Isaac. Isaac, okay? So, you like to break things. Do not do this unless you have authority and permission from someone older than you. Okay. Stay right there. I have something for you. The safety, moms. Okay? I have safety. Hold that iron rod. Oh, i got to move this. Okay. So, safety so things don't come out. What is this? A clay pot, right? Don't hit it yet, but feel it with your hand, not the hammer. Is, is that breakable? Maybe. Okay. So we're going to put it in here. You're going to put your hand in here. And then we're, yeah? And you're going to break it. Is it fully? Are you done? Are you done? Was that fun? You want to do it again? I didn't bring any more. Okay. Now I have to buy a new pot. That's not funny. That costs money. You owe me three dollars. And he's laughing. Are you going to stop giggling yet? No. Okay. Thank you, Isaac. Everybody say thank you. Okay. How easy? Isaac, was that easy to break? Yeah? So it wasn't hard at all, was it? So if he could break a clay pot like that, imagine when God tells Jesus, you are going to break these nations that rage against you, that have hostility towards you. You are going to break them like a clay pot with an iron rod. Those who want to stop God, those who want to stop the kingdom of God will have a better chance rearranging the constellations than stopping the will and sovereignty of God. They're going to be easily destroyed. And if you don't believe me, just come up and look at this mess of stuff that Isaac left. Pharaoh, his wise men, all of his hosts, his horses are sinking in the Red Sea because he stood against God. In the New Testament time, 30 Roman emperors governors and providences, other high people in the office who distinguished themselves by their zeal and bitterness of persecuting Christians. Here's what happened to these 30 guys who wanted all Christians gone. One became deranged after some atrocious cruelty. He witnessed it, partook in it, and he went mad. One was killed by his own son. How'd you like that? 
One became blind. The others, the eyes of another. Kids, I really wanted you to hear this. Thirty guys tried to go against Christ and the church. One became, what did I say? Mad. One was killed by his own son. One became blind. The other one, his eyes actually popped out of his head. Okay? Think about that. One was drowned. One was strangled. One died in a miserable um, captivity. One fell dead in a manner that we are not going to talk about in this company. Okay, one died of so loathsome of a disease that several of his physicians were put to death because they couldn't stand the stench of him. Um, two committed suicide. A third attempted it but had to call for help to finish the work, so he failed at it. Five were assassinated by their own people. Five others died in the most miserable and excruciating deaths. Several of them had complications of diseases. Eight were killed in battle. Julian was said to have pointed his dagger. He's one of the 30. Julian was said to have pointed his dagger to heaven, defying the Son of God. He defied him and said, I will overthrow and I will wipe your name from this earth, basically. Um, he was commonly called a Galilean, but when he was wounded in battle... He saw that it was over with him. He gathered up his clotted blood. This is gross, but hear this. He picked it up and threw it in the air and says, You have won, O Galilean, meaning Jesus. And then he died. Such is the end of many who ever oppose God. They end. When you stand against God, you will break. Just like the clay pot, you will break because God is the iron scepter. Verses 11 through 12, now then, you kings. He went to talking to his son. Now he's talking to earthly authorities. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverent fear and rejoice with trembling. Serve the Lord with reverent fear and rejoice with trembling. Submit to God's royal son or he will become angry and you will be destroyed in the midst of all your activities. For his anger flares up in an instant, but what joy for those who take refuge in him. Serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling. Fear and joy seem to go against each other, we think. Uh, we may think that you can't have one and the other at the same time, but this fear of God focuses and fuels our joy. When I have an, not a scared of God, but an authority, awestruck fear of Him, that He is big, He is smart, and I am not. And when I have that healthy respect of Him, that fear, that focuses and fuels the joy I can have in Him. If you take away the fear and respect of God, your feeling or your faith is going to be feeling-based, empty, and hollow. There's going to be no respect or awe of who God is, and really it's feeling-based then, and you don't need Jesus. If you remove the joy from the fear and keep only fear, then you become paralyzed and legalistic with all the rules and regulations, trying to be good enough to be equal with God. But when we combine the healthy fear-respect of God and a joy in who He is, we'll see our faith, our faith in Him, a relationship in Him grow. Verse 12 there shows there are two paths in the world. Either go against God's royal son or go to God's royal son. God, God said it in Psalm 2, 
that all those who submit to this son, this king, will get joy. He's going to give them these great rewards. Well, Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Notice in Psalm 2 and John 14, 6, they're saying the exact same thing. In the fall of 1943, German soldiers began rounding up Jews in Italy and deporting them by the thousands to concentration camps. Simultaneously, in Italy, um, there was a mysterious and extremely deadly disease the doctors started calling Syndrome K. It swept through the city of Rome, causing dozens of patients to be admitted to the local hospital. The the, um, information about this Syndrome K is very sketchy, but the symptoms included this, persistent coughing, paralysis, and painful death. And it is very highly contagious. So when soldiers came into different areas to gather the, the Jews, doctors would tell them, there's a coughing patient back here who has syn- um, syndrome K. The terrified German soldiers stay out of those rooms. And it turned out that symptom K was a made-up disease. Which was a way for the people there to protect the Jews. They were hidden behind this veil and said they have symptom K. And the ones who were causing harm and death fled in terror. When we live our lives behind the veil of Christ in Him, the symptom of sin which causes death cannot get us. And it has to run away in terror because of the one who holds the authority. Jesus is the only refuge that will protect us from an eternity in hell. Only one person can save us from that death. Only one person can save us from this sin syndrome. And if you turn to Jesus, if you have never done so, you can find refuge, you can find safety, and you can know that death, when it comes looking for you, runs away in fear because you are in the company, you are in the control, you are in the safety of the great physician who knows what is real. Psalm 2 is all about Jesus, about how Jesus is going to rule, how Jesus is going to save those who are in his name, and he's going to punish those who are not. And so when we really read Psalms 2, it points to Jesus and Jesus saying, just come to me. It's a request, it's an invitation But it is also a command. Come to me so you can have life. Come to me so you can have safety. Come to me so I can take you to God the Father. Because there is only one way. Will you choose that? If you have never chosen that, we we just want to offer the same invitation that Jesus has given, that God has given since the beginning of time. Will you come to him? We would love to talk to you about that to see how you can come into Christ. If you need something to pray with, to come together with other people who are struggling in sins and know that we can all come to God together, we'd love to meet you in the back room and pray with you and over you for these things. But won't you come? We're going to close in prayer. We're going to stand and we're going to go to the God who wrote and authored this. Jesus, Father God, we thank you for your son. We thank you that Not only can we have safety and security in you, but that we can have a home for eternity. 
Help us to not live in in hostility towards you and your law, but to be more like Psalm 1 and, and delight in it and meditate on it. God, help us as Christians in this nation to always stand on your word, to always proclaim its truth, and to be unmoving in what you say. Lord, as, as, as our nation right now is in the remembrance of, of what happened so many years ago on 9-11, as we try to seek to honor those in authority and those in rescue services and, and rightly give them respect. We thank you for them and all they've done in their service. But I thank you even more that they have learned that from you, of who you are, that you went into the tower that rose above the earth, that you took the sin so that I didn't have to die, and you kept evil at bay through your blood. And help us as we come right now to worship you once now. Once again, to lift up your name, to proclaim your truth. And in Jesus we all pray. Amen.